Scripture reading tonight is Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Listen, this is God's word. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding His praise endures forever. Well, we are in a season of transition in more ways than one today, Uh, not the least of which is tonight marks the uh, unofficial, I suppose, end of the Thanksgiving Day weekend. So a good percentage of the country is currently on the roads or in the air. Uh, But today also marks for most, uh, many churches around the world, the first Sunday of Advent, that season of hopeful reflection on the coming of our Savior. And that for us is capped off by our Christmas Eve service on Saturday night and our unique opportunity this year to celebrate simultaneously the Incarnation and the Resurrection on Sunday, December 25. So if you pay attention to the calendar in those kinds of ways, you realize uh, tonight we're in that moment where we get to look back on a season of giving thanks as we look forward to a new celebration with some sense of hope and expectation. And interestingly enough, of course, both giving thanks and living with hopeful expectation are never-ending Christian obligations. These are the things to which God calls us to, as believers in our Lord Jesus, to perpetually be giving Him thanks and praise, and also always to be living with hopefulness and expectation. And I would guess uh, many of you can identify with me, speaking of looking back, but uh, you can identify with me in my mental picture of my first grade classroom. And those 26 pictures lining the wall just under the chalkboard conveniently placed at eye level for the average five-year-old little boy like me. And the first picture, of course, is that bright red A is for apple with a shiny red apple next to it. And along with every other English-speaking child, I learned the universal A is for apple, B is for ball, right down to Z is for xylophone, and in good King's English, Z is for zebra. Come to think of it, we probably wouldn't know what a xylophone was, but for the English alphabet's need to tell us or teach us the letter X. 
Well, Psalm 111 is an alphabetic psalm, or to use that big word, it's an acrostic. Uh, The first word uh, in each phrase begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet so that all uh, 22 letters are used. And the most famous acrostic Uh, Psalm is uh, Psalm 119 with its paragraph divisions according to uh, the alphabet. But to notice here and for our purposes tonight that to create a poem like this requires a level of artistic skill. If you could think back to your seventh grade now composition class, you thought you were getting the hang of rhyme and uh, rhythm and then your teacher would talk about haiku and iambic pentameter and you were quickly lost and maybe as close as you ever got to writing an acrostic was a Mother's Day card where you spelled mother and wrote some adjectives uh, starting with those letters. Or if you were uninspired or an underachiever, you just wrote a card with mom on it. Most folks believe that acrostic psalms are acrostic to be mnemonic. They're, They're to promote memorization. But there's also some sense of creative artistry here. We remember that A is for Apple and Z, or X is rather is for xylophone. And Psalm 111 would have us uh, tonight remember that P is for praise and T is for thanksgiving and H is for hope. Psalm 111 is a call to us to join in with the psalmist in celebrating the Lord by praising him for who he is, for what he has done, and for what he will yet do. Psalm 111 is a kind of uh, poetic snapshot of Israel's history to this point and God's dealings with his people. And as we enter back into that world for tonight's purposes, looking at Psalm 111, we'll be drawn as well to recognize that God has more work to do. But it sure is going to look a lot like what Psalm 111 captures for us. So tonight I want us to look at Psalm 111 from uh, three separate angles. The first, to notice that your praise of God is to be both private and public. Your praise of the Lord is to be both private and public. First words out of the psalmist's mouth, Hallelujah, praise Yahweh. And then notice he begins with himself. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. It's internal. By this, I, I take this to mean that the praise of God is the, psalmist, uh, the psalm writer's all-consuming, unadulterated praise of God. This is what occupies his thoughts. It fills his heart. There's nothing else other than the greatness of God. No other desire than to praise God for his greatness. If his heart is a container that holds 100 units of praise, all 100 units are dedicated to praising the Lord. But his praise never remains private or internal. I will give thanks to the Lord in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Psalm 111 is very likely a psalm that's recited at significant festivals. 
in Israel's uh, cycles of worship as people gathered and assembled to praise the Lord in their own reflection on what he had done in their lives, they would sing or recite Psalm 111 and they would know it, remember, because it was an acrostic. This is a psalm you sing not just in your heart, not just in your prayer closet, not just in your quiet time, but it's a hymn of praise that spills over into your public praise with God's people. And of course, this is one of the great things that I love about Trinity in our Thanksgiving Day service, or even in our expressions of our testimony Sunday evenings, that we have an opportunity publicly, openly to express our praise, to tell each other of how God has blessed us personally, but also corporately. The psalmist's heart overflows. He cannot suppress this. He cannot keep it in. He praises the Lord from the heart, in the heart, but it spills over that praise in the assembly of God's people. And that brings us to the second longest uh, section of the psalm, really verses uh, 2 through 9. If our praise is not simply private, but also public, then our praise also, secondly, flows out of hearts that detail and delight in the deeds of the Lord. Our praise flows out of hearts that detail and delight in the deeds of the Lord. And this brings us in a couple different directions here. First of all, we're to ask ourselves, what are these deeds of the Lord? And he lists in this psalm, or at least you can pick out in, of this psalm, five uh, distinct deeds or actions or activities of the Lord. They are not listed chronologically, uh, and that's okay because, remember, this is poetry. It's not the kind of maybe historical nor- narrative where you expect one thing to happen then the others, although even our historical narratives are rarely strictly chronological. But look at verse 5. He remembers his covenant forever. And we think back to uh, the earliest days of the book of Exodus. King of Egypt died and uh, the people of Israel groaned um, uh, because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery was heard uh, by God. God heard their groaning. And we read in those verses in Exodus, God remembered his covenant. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He saw his people. He heard their groans, even if they weren't directed to him. But God knew. And God knew he had made a covenant with Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, which he had already done. That he would bless them and through them he would bless all the nations of the earth. But he remembered he had promised to give them a land. And he had promised that their descendants would live in the land. And so as God had not only established that relationship with Abraham, now he remembers that this nation that had grew in number through its slavery and oppression and in a context where any thoughtful Jew would have asked, where is this Yahweh who had promised our great, great, great grandfather Abraham? Where is this Yahweh who made a covenant relationship with us? 
And the Lord remembers. The Lord hears, the Lord remembers. And what does he do? He raises up a deliverer in Moses. And this brings us to the second of his deeds. Verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. They were enslaved. They were subjected to hard labor. They were facing oppressive work conditions. Their only reward for productivity was a whip that urged them to work harder, uh, to produce more with fewer raw materials. They were owned like property and valued only in terms of what they could produce. And the Lord who remembered his covenant promises to those prior generations sends redemption when he raises up Moses. And Moses, God's great representative, stands in the Egyptian court and challenges Pharaoh, and through Pharaoh challenges all the whole pantheon of Egyptian gods, and he challenges, as Yahweh does through him, he challenges Pharaoh for ownership of these people. They would go from being slaves in Egypt to becoming slaves and servants of Yahweh. He sends redemption, and it comes in a slightly different form than anyone might have expected, but it comes through that great series of miraculous events as the Lord brings them out of slavery so that they could be his servants. And of course, that leads to that third great deed. He brings them out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai. Verse 9, he commanded his covenant forever. After bringing them out, he assembles them at the foot of the mountain, and Moses, his representative, stands between heaven and earth and receives from the Lord those constitutive documents that make them a nation, that form them, and have them know how they're to live as God's people. And again, on the mountain, he voices that same principle. He will be their God. They will be his people. <clears throat> and through Moses, he gives them the law. He gives them direction for how they're to live, how they are to worship him, how are they to be distinguished from everyone else around them. And of course, right down to the details of the furniture in the temple. But these were not all of the promises he had made and now remembered. And we see a fourth significant set of works or deeds described in verse 5. He provided food for them. And you remember, of course, in the wilderness each day they would lift the flap of their tent every morning and uh, simply go out and gather the food the Lord had sent them through the night. There it was on the ground for them. And the Lord provided water and manna, and quails. And of course he does this in spite of their regular grumbling or their complaining or their lack of faith, their doubting of God's ability to bring them into the promised land after he had done all that to get them that far. Remarkable that they thought the Lord was bringing them into the wilderness to let them die of starvation. The Lord fed them. And fifthly, notice verse 6, he gave them the inheritance of the nations. He brought them into a land they had not developed or cleared or farmed. 
<clears throat> he brought them into houses they had not built. They were drinking water from wells they had not dug, eating from trees they had not planted, picking clusters off of vines they had not tended. And if you think about it for a moment, this is land that had been promised to someone else. <clears throat> there was a previous nation of inhabitants in there, and they had promised their little piece of that land to their sons and grandsons and great-grandchildren down the road. But the Lord had promised this little patch of land to Abraham. And he makes good on that promise through a series of acts of great power. He drives out the nation so that his people can live there and enjoy it. <clears throat> and if this whole series of acts from remembering his covenant promises to redeeming them, <clears throat> to reconstituting them, to refreshing them and resettling them, all this occupies the mind of the psalmist, so he declares in verse 2, Great are the works of the Lord, for they are many. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, if you're the recipient of God's blessings in all these most spectacular ways, is that part of your story of how you got here? It never hurts to ponder, to study those works of God. And you discover that they are great. And you discover that this is what is prompting your praise. That God has made good on his promises. <clears throat> that he's demonstrated his great power <clears throat> excuse me, through uh, these miraculous, spectacular events. That he's formed a people. That he's refreshed them with food. That he's brought them in, settled them into the land. Great are the works of the Lord. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. <clears throat> because they all combine into one great work. One great continuous act of salvation and redemption that God had planned from the beginning. There's another perspective, though. Not only do we have these five distinct actions or series of events uh, in God's activity in the lives of his people, but consider this. Remember Jesus said, by their works you will know them. By their fruit you will know them. By their works you will know them. That's a principle that applies to God as well. If these are all the deeds and these are all the works of God, they tell us something about who God is. And this too leads the psalmist to praise. He's not only praising God for what he has done, but he runs all of what God has done. He filters all those works through a grid that tells him these activities, these deeds, these great works say something about the character and the identity of God. And I think we have been able to put some of this together for ourselves. We think about, we've reflected, we spent a little time this past weekend talking about some of the great things God has done for us. We look back and we see some of the ways God has been a particular blessing to us as individuals or as families or as a church or as a country. And here the psalmist is saying, when you look at these significant events in the history of the life of Israel, as God has been acting because he remembered his covenant, 
And because he was interested in rescuing and redeeming and re replanting his people, all these things say something about who God is. So, for example, he's holy and awesome, which is how he reveals himself to his people at Sinai. He's gracious and merciful, which is about the only way to explain how he provides food in the wilderness each day for a people prone to grumbling and complaining. He's generous, he's gracious, he's merciful. But he's also powerful, uh, verse 6, which is really the only way to explain how he uh, overcomes the gods of Egypt, how he delivers his people, how he produces manna each day, how he causes the walls of the Red Sea to collapse on the Egyptians and the walls of Jericho to collapse on the people of that city. This whole great grand story of God's redemption is like it really is, like that diamond you can look at from every angle and see new subplots and facets that highlight, that amplify, that exalt the character of God. Again, this gets us back to the main point in, uh, first expressed in verse 2 and then re-expressed in verse 10. The psalmist wants the faithful, he wants us to hold up this story to look at that complex of events of God's mighty acts in history and to look at it from every angle, to hold it up to the sunlight, to be dazzled by it so that we might praise God both privately and publicly. That we might detail and delight in the deeds of the Lord. That we might be astounded by what he has done in the past and what he has done again and what he might do because he said he would. So our praise is private and then public and it's a praise that is defined in so many ways as it's prompted by all of the recounting of the deeds of God. And this praise is going to be perpetual notice, finally. It's praise that is fueled by perpetual pondering. Look again at verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. You've heard that before. And now the question is, how do we live in this world? How do we make sense of all those great questions of life? How do, we have, how do we engage our unbelieving neighbor who has deep pondering questions about uh, life? Why am I here? Who am I? Where am I going? Why is everything so wrong? Where am I going and how do I get there? Well, for the psalmist, wisdom Living before God begins with God. Because God is both the source of wisdom, but he's the giver of wisdom. And it's by his wisdom we're to understand how to live in this world he's made and in which he's placed us. But the good news in Psalm 111 is that uh, we gain this wisdom by searching intently uh, for God, by delighting in his great acts of salvation. In other words, by delighting in his revelation to us of himself in what he has done. 
And then we think to ourselves, how much uh, better, <clears throat> how much clearer of a position are we in than the psalmist? How does God show to us that he remembers his covenant? How does God show his great power, his mercy, his compassion, his kindness? How does he show us his holiness, of his desire to have a people for himself? Well, doesn't he do this most clearly in his greatest act of redemption, or in his greatest complex of acts of redemption? in sending his son. Here's your Advent portion of the message. Jesus, in his incarnation, in his arrival, is the arrival of God's great and precious promises, long predicted and pictured in the Old Testament. And from his incarnation through his suffering and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, we have all of them pictured in the Old Testament in those acts of redemption. Or you could say the whole Old Testament story, especially of the exodus into the promised land, is a paradigm for what God will do for us in Jesus. God demonstrates his superiority over all other gods. God demonstrates his holiness in, his, uh, in the expression that all need to die for their sin, but God expresses his mercy in sending one who will die in our place. He shows his faithfulness in remembering his covenant after centuries of silence in that middle period between Old and New Testaments for us. But he also shows he remembers his covenant after three days of silence when his son was in the grave. And he powerfully raises him from the dead. And then as he reconstitutes us as a people of God, what does he do? <clears throat> he tells us, as if you've been here other Sunday evenings, uh, we see from 1 John and, uh, and we've been learning that we're called to believe in his son and we're called to love one another. Those are the great commandments that shape and define a new covenant people. We're to love the Lord our God and we're to love each other. God and his work in Jesus Christ are to be studied and pondered by all who delight in them. And this, of course, raises a very simple question for us tonight. What fills or occupies our hearts and our minds tonight? What are those things with which we are preoccupied? <clears throat> and I know for some of you it's just very, very easy to be drawn in as I have been to conversations about the World Cup or the economy or the coming of Christmas or the delights we've had with our families but what fills our minds? What occupies our hearts tonight? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. There are lasting aspects to our understanding of life in this world and what we are experiencing and enjoying every day as they come from God. And we see 
the world around us, and we, to some extent, know and understand the world around us like unbelievers can't, because we know it takes wisdom to interpret the world. And it takes wisdom to interpret our place in this world, and we know we can't, uh, we are not the source of that wisdom, but we find it in God. And of course, again, the reminder of the psalm, the encouragement of the psalm is that God not only is a source of wisdom, but delights to reveal himself to those who seek him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what do you value? What are you searching for? What are you pursuing after? <clears throat> One of the great little bits of good news in this psalm, in addition to its summary of all God's divine, salvific activity, is that God wants to be known. He wants to be discovered. He wants to be known, and he wants to impart his wisdom to you as you ponder and reflect on what he's done. Because everything he's done is a reflection of who he is. And so your praise, which will be perpetual, which will endure forever, begins in your heart, overflows to your gathering with God's people. And that wisdom that God promises <clears throat> is, again, most exemplified in Jesus who says, someone greater than Solomon is here. His praise will endure forever. And so here you are tonight on this little, um, little bit of a moment of transition. Thanksgiving in the rearview mirror. But you know it's a life of thanksgiving. The prospect of and the hope and the expectation of Christmas coming, of the incarnation celebrations. And through all this, you already know that all this has happened. These are the great salvific activities of God in history. He wants us to ponder them, to reflect on them, and he wants us to shape who we are, what we think, what we long for, what we desire, so that we will praise him forever. And so we have a sense of hope. We have a sense of expectation, not simply for <clears throat> what will happen on December 24th and, and then on 25th, but because Jesus, this Jesus who's accomplished this salvation for us, is coming back. And he will be praised forever by us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reorienting us in your word for reminding us of your great acts of salvation, all picturing for us something even far greater, that you have called us out of darkness and slavery to sin, called us to belong as servants uh, to you. Thank you for filling our hearts with joy and delight in our reflection of your great and mighty acts, not simply because they are good for us, but because they reveal to us who you are. Now empower us to be faithful in our walk with you this week. Grant to those who are facing the week with some sense of dread and apprehension, a sense of your presence and peace. For those, Lord, looking at uh, the week ahead, uh, wondering how they're going to get everything done that needs to get done, grant us a sense of pacing and a sense of dependence on you. Lord, 
for each and all, we ask that you would keep us close to yourself, that you might be honored and exalted as you continue to reveal yourself to those who ponder your great works. And then receive our praise tonight and throughout the week until we gather again next week. We ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, amen.